Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am very excited about today's guest. We have Jeremy Miner, who is a sales coach professional guru. This guy has done it all. I'm super excited to have on here to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is sales. And this is probably a deeper dive into this than we've ever had with a guest on the show. So I'm very excited. And uh, thank you so much for making some time to be on the show here today, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm just traveling. I'm at my uh, lake house here in Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri. If you guys have ever seen that Netflix show, Jason Bateman, Ozark, this is where I'm at. It's it's quite, the show is actually pretty accurate, actually. If anybody's ever seen it, it's kind of, kind of surprising, uh, by yeah. the way. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. All right, awesome. And, and I want to make the connection real quick before we get started. Not a lot of people associate the ability to take vacation and work where you want with sales. But sales is a very important component, in my opinion, to get there because sales gets your revenue. Revenue allows you to hire people and hiring people is a lot what allows you to eventually step away from the business. But to that point, let's talk about sales, Jeremy. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you just kind of like, you know, let's start with a superior origin story. How'd you get into sales in the first place? Well, so so I uh, I got into sales as a kind of a broke, burned out college student back when I was 21, almost 22, back in school. My degree was behavioral science and human psychology. And my person in the dorm came in and said, there's this company hiring. You can make all this money in the summer. You don't have to work. You can focus on school the rest of the year. I went to the meeting. They hire everybody because it's straight commission. So everybody gets hired that has a pulse. And basically, a couple months later, I went to Boise, Idaho. The manager drives everybody out in a van. They drop you off in a neighborhood with a script. You know, you got to memorize a script, a couple books by the what I call the old sales gurus. And they basically said, hey, go make some sales. And I thought selling was going to be easy because that's what everybody taught me. You know, they said, hey, it's going to be easy. You're going to make all this money. I still remember the sales manager saying, Jeremy, when you knock on the door, make sure to tell, like, show how enthusiastic you are about the, you know, we're selling alarm system. Show them how excited you are, and they're going to be excited back. This is the last thing I heard. So I'm like, okay, that makes, I mean, what, what did this 21-year-old kid know? I had no idea. So I knocked on the door, and I was really excited, and I talked about the features and the benefits, and I was going to help them, and I was going to do this, and I was going to do that. And I noticed in the very first door that I was getting a lot of objections. And they say, we don't need it. Uh, we already had somebody tell us about this last week. Somebody already came around. You know what? I need to talk with my spouse. Let me think it over. It's too expensive. We don't have the money for this. Can you call me back in a week, a month, a year later? And so I remember after about seven or eight weeks of all that rejection, hardly making any sales. And when you're on a straight commission sales job, if you don't make any sales, well, guess what happens? You don't typically last that long at that job. And I remember like sitting on the curb one night, it's a Friday night, July, hot, you know, sweat dripping down your shirt. If anybody's ever done door-to-door sales before they, you know, got into their practice, they would know what I'm talking about. And I remember thinking, you know, maybe, maybe selling, maybe selling just wasn't for me. You know, have you ever felt that way yourself, kind of watching us listen to that? And I remember the manager picking up that night, he popped in a Tony Robbins CD. Now, this was like 21 years ago. People listened to CDs back in the day, all right? I'm that old. And he topped in a Tony Robbins CD, and Tony said something like this, and it changed everything for me. He said, you will fail if you don't learn the right skills 
necessary to succeed. You will fail if you don't learn the right skills necessary. So he goes on to say everybody's taught skills, but he said the people who fail are the ones who are not taught the right ones. And it was like suddenly like this, it was like a light bulb moment. It's like the heaven's intervention that maybe what I was learning from my company and what I call the old sales gurus, maybe they just weren't the right skills. Maybe they were just outdated. Maybe they shouldn't work very well anymore. And so at the same time, I was in college, like I mentioned, studying behavioral science and human psychology. If you really break it down, it's a study of the brain. It's why a human being makes a decision to do one thing or the other. And so I started thinking, like, how do I take this theory of behavioral science, you know, how human beings decide something, what triggers them to go into fight or flight mode with the reptilian part of the brain, all this kind of stuff I was learning, science behind it. How do I bring that into my sales process? So I started doing that, luckily. And things changed immediately. So instead of me pushing prospects to purchase what I was offering, which is what 99.9% .9 of us are taught, I learned how to get my prospects to pull me in. And selling became very, very easy and very, very profitable. That's my boring start in my sales world. Oh, yeah, I love it. And you know what? Honestly, I want to point something out for anyone who's in a similar situation. You're reminding me of super successful client we have. And he had a similar start, not quite seven, eight weeks of knocking on doors and getting uh, sand right. in my face. That's hardcore, by the way. Big respect. Anyone who can sell door to door, that's the hardest way to, to do it. But I think he went zero for 30 in his first consultations. But it's interesting. Because yeah. that, for one, you passed a very important test, which is, you know, you decided to take ownership over the results. And that's yeah. a big part of why you're here today. But two, I feel like there's kind of an interesting convergence because it's like people that have the situation where it's almost like you teach what you needed when you got started, right? And you're obviously in a position where you're teaching so many people. So I, I yeah. want people to take those two things from it. There's no such, I mean, have you found anyone who's just not impossible to sell? I'm sure you guys have some crazy stories about people who had terrible disadvantages that are crushing it right now. Sure. Here's the thing we all have to realize. It's not necessarily your fault that you were taught how to sell a certain way. It's not your fault. Like we were all taught to sell like traditional selling techniques, push them manipulate them. You know, selling is about you so you can make money. It's not your fault, but it is your problem. It's not your fault, but it is damn sure your problem. So that's what I realized early on. This is not my fault that I was trained this way, but it is a problem that I have to do something about. And once you take ownership, you said that once you take ownership of your results and realize I have to learn more advanced skills, I have to learn these skills if I want to not only make a good living for myself and for my firm or whatever, whoever I represent, but also to help my clients. Because if I don't know how to communicate with them and their problems stay the same and they stay in the status quo, then that's really my fault, not theirs. You with me on that? hundred percent. Like, you know, I always say it's, if you believe in what you sell, it's your moral imperative to make yourself as effective as possible with convincing people to get connected with your service. And well, yeah, it's getting them to convince themselves because if you really, yeah. you really think about it, this seg kind of segues into something we were talking about before we get on here is that everyone is in sales. Now, I don't care what you do. Even if you don't get paid a commission, what are you doing every day? You're out there trying to persuade, you're trying to influence and you're trying to move others, right? We call that non-sales selling. So let's say that you're an attorney, right? You talk to a lot of attorneys and you're trying to convince a jury of your peers that your client is innocent. Well, what are you doing? You're trying to persuade. You're trying to influence. You're trying to move others. If a client comes into you, you know, a, a prospect per se comes into you because they saw an ad 
and they, you know, they're looking for an attorney. Well, what are you trying to do? You're trying to persuade, you're trying to influence, you're trying to move others. If you're a business owner, right, trying to convince your employees in your firm to follow the vision of where you want to take the company, well, what are you trying to do? You're trying to persuade, you're trying to influence. If you work for a firm and you're trying to convince your boss to give you a pay raise, what are you trying to do? You're trying to persuade, you're trying to influence, you're trying to move others. So it doesn't matter what we do. Everybody in this day and age is in some form or the other trying to persuade, influence, and move others on a daily basis. It's the most critical skill that we could learn. Yeah, 100%. And um, I also want to dig into something too, because I feel like, and, and this is something, uh, if you guys have heard this rant on the podcast before, apologies that you have to hear it again. But like one of the things that I hugest gripe with the legal industry as a whole is that people are afraid of the word sales. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times people will dress it up, they'll say it's intake or consultations or something like that. But we're mask off here on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. It's sales, get over it. But basically, I want to ask, is um, the way that you talk about old school selling, I feel like it's very tied in with what people want to avoid because I think yeah. it's possible that people have felt that on the receiving yeah. end they don't like. But what would you say are the most common things that you say see today that people are just, you know, old school dinosaur sales tactics that they well, kind of get rid of? You know, it's, it's interesting that you said that the people, you know, in that profession that you're talking about don't like the word sales. Well, what's behind that? Why do they not like sales? You hit it right on the head. The reason why they don't like sales is because they have experiences when salespeople try to sell them and push them and manipulate them. And the human beings don't like that. For the most part, 99% of the human race does not like to go out and hit their hand on the sand, you know, punch people in the face and try to manipulate them and push them and win them over so they can make money. That is unnatural to us as a human being. It goes against our personalities for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't like that. So if we think that's what sales is, of course, we're not going to want to be in sales. But see, that's, you know, selling is not adversarial. It's not you against the prospect trying to win them over so you can make money. That is what average salespeople do in our day and age. Top 1% salespeople, top 1% attorneys, top 1% of anything that's out there trying to move and persuade view selling as more collaborative. It's you working with your prospects to help them find and solve problems that maybe they didn't even think they had. And when you start to view sales in that way, that you're a problem finder and problem solver, not a product pusher, selling is viewed differently and it feels differently. It comes across differently. But to go back to your question, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we see, you know, business owners make, salespeople make, even, you know, contractors that are trying to get a client or even an attorney who's trying to get a client is that they've been taught that they have to come across enthusiastic about what they do, excited about their solution. And when I say that at events, people are like, no, Jeremy, I've always been taught that I got to be excited about what I sell. And I agree with you, but you have to keep that internal. You have to keep it to yourself. You have to get rid of what we call commission breath. And here's why. <laughs> I love that word. It, here's it's commission breath, right? Like people smell the commission breath from like a hundred feet away when they're walking in your office. When they walk in and you're, they could just smell it, right? They smell, they can feel it from your handshake. So this is just behavioral science 101 that we all have to understand. Within the first seven to 12 seconds of any interaction you are with a human being, so a sales interaction, let's say that client, that prospective client walks into your office and starts talking to you and you start talking back. Within the first seven to 12 seconds of that interaction, your prospects subconsciously, we can't even help it as a human being, subconsciously are picking up on social cues from you immediately. They're picking up on your verbal and nonverbal cues from your tonality 
and what you are saying and or asking that triggers their brain to react in one of two ways. Now, that's a scary thought. It can trigger the brain to react in one of two ways within seven to 12 seconds. So we have to understand. So if you come across aggressive in that conversation, if you come across needy, if you come across attached and you don't understand the right questions to ask with the right tone, it triggers the most human beings, unless they're a lay down, to go into what's called fight or flight mode. Now, everybody's heard fight or flight mode, but does anybody know what triggers that in our reptilian part of our brain? So it, it triggers protection. We have to protect ourselves. The wall comes up, right? You guys have all been in that situation where you're like, salesperson trying to sell me something and the wall comes up and you do what? You emotionally shut down and you try to get rid of them, right? Am I right here? Everybody's no, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's right up. We show right up, even the very best questions, you can tell that they're staying surface level with you, just one or two word answers. And then at the end, oh, that sounds really good, but we just really need time to think about it. It's a big decision. We don't make rash decisions. Oh, we're meeting with this other you know, person to talk about this and we'll get back to you if we're interested. And then you never hear back, right? Mm -hmm. That's because you're triggering flight mode. If you're triggering fight mode, they start to argue with you and like, well, just tell me I'm just going to cost. I don't have much time. Can you, can we get on with this? Like, I don't have time for questions. That's because you triggered fight mode. Now, once you learn what we talk about, how to work with human behavior, we call that NEPQ, neuroemotional persuasion questioning, and you learn how to come across more neutral. Like you're unbiased. You're not quite sure if you can even help yet because you don't know anything about the situation. Okay. You come across more collective and calm, and especially detached, detached is the keyword. And you know what questions to ask with the right tone, it triggers the brain on their end to become curious enough where they want to engage. And they feel like they can open up to you and tell you what's really going on. So we have to learn how to become detached from the expectations of making the sale and instead focus on whether or not we can actually help them. Now, do I mean when you start talking to potential clients that your goal is not to retain them as a client or have them purchase what you're offering? Well, hell no. Obviously, I don't. I'm not implying that. Your goal is to do that, of course, but you have to keep that to yourself. You have to keep that internal because the moment they feel that that is what you're trying to do, like you said, is the moment they emotionally shut down. Make sense? Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so I want to talk about something that I've found, which is a huge problem in the legal industry. And okay. basically, I feel that the the most attorneys enter private practice with that by themselves and just kind of solo practitioners with negative training. So what people are taught in big law journaling, I'm sure this is an issue with all other industries you've seen, but I'd love to hear your pin on it because basically what they teach people in big law is to be smart, answer questions, puff your chest out, and then basically the client's just going to walk over and hand over their credit card if that works out. So a huge issue we see is that people don't ask questions. So how do you recommend people go from the defense to the offense or whether they should go on offense in the first place? Well, let's do this. I'll, I'll kind of explain it in a, in a manner that might make more sense to your audience. So let's go back to like behavioral science and human psychology so we understand what's going on in the person you're talking to's brain. Because once you can put yourself in their shoes, then it becomes really easy to understand why certain things we're doing is triggering them to say, I want to think it over compared to certain things you've done in the past that triggered them to want to pay you immediately. And you just didn't know what you did right, right? So according to behavioral science, there are actually three forms of persuasion. And I, I would suggest all of you that are hearing, watching us right now, write these down. Because once you understand the differences in persuasion and where you are now, even if you're already doing good compared to where you could be, it'll completely change everything for you, all right? So the first mode of communication, it's called era one 
type of sales. And I'm not going to give the scientific term that will make much sense to everybody. But if I said the words boiler room selling, what would be the first image that came to your mind, John? Yeah, uh, I would say, yeah, used car, probably. Yeah, you say used car. Maybe you've seen the movie Wolf on Wall Street, you know, Gordon Gecko pounding the phones. Hey, yeah. manipulating people like, hey, you got a great opportunity for you. And we, we push them and we manipulate them. So according to the science, we are actually, this is just the data. We're the least persuasive, the least persuasive. When we attempt to tell people things, talk down to them, attempt to dominate them, manipulate them, and push them into doing something we want them to do, just like boiler room selling. Hey, you've got a great opportunity. We talk about the features and benefits, and we're so smart. And then we push and tell them why they need to buy and need to go with this. It's just like if you told like your teenager in your house that they really, really need to do something, or your spouse that they really, really need to do something, you keep pushing them. What do they typically do back? Make you sleep on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> they, push, they push back. They just push back. If you push, human behavior 101 says people push back, right? If you're a politician and you're telling everybody they have to do something and you push them, what does the average human being do? They don't like being pushed, so they push back. It's just human behavior 101. So let me give you a few examples of the least persuasive way to communicate. Presenting. We've all been taught you have to have an amazing presentation, show them the office, the you know, we've got the best customer service awards, we've got the best clients, we've got the best this, we've got the best that, which by the way, doesn't every single business or salesperson say they have the best solution? Yeah. How many salespeople that have ever tried to sell you something and said, Jan, you know, we're the fifth best in the market. <laughs> Nobody, yeah. nobody says that. So your prospects are used to everybody saying the same thing. And when you sound like everybody else, they just clump you in with everybody else that's ever tried to sell them something. So especially when we say things like, we have the number one this, we have the number one that. Now, there's different ways to see that where it comes across better. We don't have time to go into that right now. Or if we talk down about our competitors. So let's say they're meeting with multiple attorneys and we're talking down about somebody they've met. Just so you're aware, your prospects actually start to trust you less because they're used to every salesperson always doing that to them. So you sound like everybody else, okay? So according to the data, it's not very persuasive if your presentation is more than 10% of that entire sales conversation. The average salesperson or any industry presents you about half the time, which is trouble. Telling your story. Hate to tell you guys this, nobody cares about your story when you're selling one-to-one. -one. Whose story do they mainly care about? Their own, right? How about putting sales pressure on this? Does anybody do that here? Or assuming the sale, according to the data, very low on the persuasion pole. It triggers sales resistance in most people because they don't like being pushed, all right? That's the first form. Second form is more known as what's called consultative selling. So you're more persuasive when you attempt to have a discussion, okay? And consultative selling techniques came out in the 80s and 90s with books like Spin Selling. You know, Neil Rackham, he's a college professor, never sold anything, by the way. But he said, you needed to ask logical-based questions to find the needs of the client, which makes sense. What's a potential downfall when you only ask logical-based questions? We call those surface-level questions. Will your prospects give you what type of answers in return? Logical, no emotion. Logical, surface-level answers, right? And attorneys sometimes have been taught how to do this. Very smart, logical-based questions. But do human beings make buying decisions on logic or emotion? No, sir. Okay. <laughs> yeah. See, brains, there's no debate. Brain studies show it's 100% of the time. There's no debate amongst the science on that at this point, okay? So you never want to ask example. You never want to ask questions like, you know, uh, what, what's your budget for this type of thing in the beginning of a conversation? Or, you know, tell me the, the main problems that you're having. Like it's too surface level. You have to go much deeper than that, okay? 
That's the second form, more persuasive than like boiler room selling, but you're still playing the numbers game because you're just asking logical based questions and your prospects are staying surface level with you. Okay. Now the third mode of communication that's known more as dialogue. Okay. So we're the most persuasive according to the data when we get or allow others to persuade themselves, when we ask what are called, write this down, neuro-emotional persuasion questions, neuro-emotional persuasion questions. That stands for NEPQ. Now, when I bring that up, people are like, great, Jeremy, how do we do that? How do we get people to persuade themselves? That's like the $1 trillion question. We have to talk, talk trillions now in our day and age, not billions anymore. <laughs> trillions, all right? Can you just show up and give them permission? Like, hey, you know, uh, Mr. Prospect, I give you permission to persuade yourself and you can write out the check to X. No, you have to learn specific skilled questions and when and how to ask them, like with the right tone. Is it more empathy here? Is it more uh, curiosity here? Is it more skepticism here? And a structure, a step-by-step -step structure that will get your prospects to pull you in and sell themselves rather than you trying to do it. So if you're talking as an attorney here that's been asked, you know, hey, sound smart, ask very intellectual, smart questions, to the average person that just goes in one ear out the other, because number one, they don't have a law background, probably like you, so they don't understand all the mumbo jumbo. And number two, service level questions get you service level answers, and they only make their buying decisions based off their emotion. See the difference? Yeah, huge. And then as far as kind of the situation goes, do you have any kind of like good places for somebody to start? So if somebody's really getting into this for the first time, they're trying to wean themselves off of the, uh, you know, the charm offensive <laughs> style of consultation. How do you imagine somebody gets started with trying to fit this into an existing consultation process or any kind of big blanket questions that you could recommend somebody start off consultation with? Well, okay. So it depends on like, give me an example. Like is the prospect coming into the office? Is it a phone yeah. call? There's different nuances. So give me a little bit more. Okay. Fun. So and I'll say, this is something that uh, we, we deal with a lot. So I'll say for the most part, let's say somebody ended up getting, we do a lot of stuff with estate planning attorneys. So we'll say, okay, let's say somebody logged on, saw the site, liked the content, and they basically their front office booked them a consultation to talk about getting their estate plan done. So they're in the office and that's the context. Okay. So typically, how would they start out that conversation normally? Give me an yeah. example. Oh, so right now, honestly, um, <laughs> depends on whether they put the effort into it. I would say the default for this, hey, I heard you're looking for a state plan. What question do you have for me? Okay, so it looks like you guys had called in requesting some information about looking at uh, some possible estate planning for when something does happen to you where your assets are protected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See how I'm just bringing the end result. See, you're not, one thing we have to understand is you're not selling the thing. You're not selling the asset plan or the estate plan. You're selling the results of what that thing does, which mm -hmm. is to what? Protect their assets when something happens to them, right? Right. Okay. Absolutely. So that's how you tie that in. Okay. So it looks like you guys had, had called in, uh, talked with my uh, assistant, Natalia, about looking at getting some possible, about getting, you know, looking at possible estate, an estate plan to like really protect your assets for when something does happen to one of you, right? Right. Yeah, right. See, it puts them right in that frame. Like, yeah, right. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I was curious because we get a lot of people that call in. How did you, where did you hear about it? Seth? Oh, I saw an ad on Facebook. I'm just making something up now. I don't know if it could be. Oh, so what, I guess what was it in the, in the ad that really attracted your attention to, to come in? Well, and they start to tell you a little bit more about why they're even in the office. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the first part of self-persuasion. Well, the reason why we came to you was because of X and Y and Z. Okay. And what were you, what were you hoping to get out of our meeting today, just so I have a better understanding. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping to see, and that positions you as more of a what? 
expert. More of an expert. More of an authority, a trusted authority. Okay. So that would be what are called connecting questions that take the focus off you and put it on your prospect. That would just be the very beginning. Then we'd want to then we'd want to kind of transition into what are called situation questions to find out what they already have in place. What is their current situation? Does that help a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll say this too, just like even with that too, I think it's really important because I think a lot of people end up not setting the conversation up in the right way. And the other thing too, is like sometimes people, especially, you know, I'll, I'll say this for, for some clients that we've worked out, they want steps one through 15 that you can follow with the checklist. And the truth is, if you're trying to have an organic situation, it does take more skill because you have to be comfortable with the conversation going in more places that you might be able to answer with a checklist, right? Yeah. And there's, there's things called like when they answer, you don't want to just sit there and go like this. You want to, <laughs> you want to do what you want to say, like what are called verbal cues. Uh-huh. Ah, okay. But help me understand. See, I'm, I'm verbal cueing that leads into my next question. So I don't sit back and let them answer. And I don't say anything. And I'm like, okay, cool. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let me ask you, because then that sounds scripted. It sounds awkward. That doesn't sound conversational. But if I'm like, uh-huh. Ah, oh, okay. But what happens and that verbal cue leads into my next question. See, I'm bridging into the next question. And when I bridge into the next question with that verbal cue, that little sound, uh-huh, but what happens? It sounds like a natural conversation and it triggers more trust. It triggers the prospect to open up more. Yeah. See the difference in that? Yeah, and now we're in dialogue as opposed to having, because I mean, it's, you can even take, two hypothetical situations where we have the same prospect, same questions asked, but when somebody sounds like you're running off of a list, it's just, I mean, I can see how this- well, they connects. feel like you're interrogating them. Right. Like you're the FBI agent or you're the IRS that just showed up on the door and you're freaking interrogating them. They're like, they're closed off. They're like, you know, why yeah. I need to talk to somebody else, right? So, and one thing that you can do, you, you know, because we train a lot of people in, in your spaces as well, you know, law firms. I've seen tons of testimonies from law firms, but it's it's interesting to me. I'm like, oh, we train law firms. Oh, cool. I didn't even know. That's awesome. But one thing you can do is you can set like a frame. So when they come in, instead of, you know, some people teach like old school techniques and they'll be like, you know, towards the end of the conversation, you can decide if this is a fit for you and we can decide if you're a good fit for us. Like nobody believes in that moment. <laughs> like nobody believes that they hand you their credit card that you're not going to take it because you're like, you're not a good fit for us. Like nobody believes that. So when you say things like that, it just triggers resistance with a lot of people, especially if they're A-types. They're like, oh, come on, man. Like that's just awkward. But you can set a frame where they know towards the end of that conversation there can be possible next steps. So I can say something like, okay, so, uh, you know, I would say the, the first part of this conversation is really more for us to find out more about kind of, you know, what you have now, as far as like, you know, protecting your assets, kind of what that looks like, you know, compared to what you're, you're looking for, just so we can kind of see what that gap looks like, see if we can actually help. And then, you know, towards the end of the conversation, if you feel like, you know, that it might be what you're looking for, you know, we can, we of course can talk about possible next steps. Would that help you? Yeah. I mean, it sounds fantastic. Like, yeah, that would help me. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see how I neutralized that though? Did you see how I started to already build a gap in their mind? Yeah. I just know. Yeah. And you're, and you're not having any of those like weird trigger things. I mean, it's so true too. It's kind of funny because we have sometimes we have clients that come from, you could tell that they, you know, they paid $5,000 for a seminar in 1992 and you know, they're, they're, yeah. 
with robots on the on the upfront contract or whatever it is but um you know it's the thing it's like if if somebody there's there's a cost like i hate when people have this mentality where it's like oh well the worst you can do is not ask like no there's there's things you can do that will brand you as the kind of person that you shouldn't give any information to because you're gonna take it and run away with it but yeah so let me i'll go over what i just did there for everybody if you guys can see me or hear me maybe you can see what i did with my hands it's all psychologically everything i just did there Okay. So yeah, the first, the first part of the, I'd say the conversation, this is if you're meeting them. Okay. So the first part of the conversation is really more for us to find out kind of what you have in place now, as far as like assets and how you're protecting those compared to what you might be looking for, just so we can kind of see what that gap looks like. Let's stop right there. Just so we can see what that gap looks like. See, I'm already creating a gap mentally in their mind by just doing this. Okay. What you have in place now, what your assets look like compared to what you might be, I'm still neutral, might be looking for just so we can see what that gap looks like to see if we can actually help that part to see if we can actually help pulls them in. I'm not saying because I know we can help you. We're assumptive there, which triggers resistance in a lot of people to see if we can actually help. And then towards the end of the conversation, if you know, if you guys feel that it, it might be what you're looking for. Uh, we can talk about possible next steps. Would that help you? Might be is neutral. Possible next steps is neutral. See how I'm not assuming that? So I trigger zero sales resistance. Would that help you guys? Everyone's like, yeah, that would help us. And instantly trust in a bond is starting to be made there. Yeah. Even if they're going to go look at, even if they were already planning on going talk with attorneys, it's going to be very hard after that conversation, if you learn what we train you, for them to like even want to go talk to another attorney because they feel like you, the attorney, understand their unique situation the most. And they will always pay more to the company or the firm or whoever if they feel they understand their unique situation the most. They'll always pay more for that. Yeah. And I'll also say this too, like, you know, based on that, I think the lack of sales education in the legal industry becomes a huge opportunity because for the people that want to move ahead and do this stuff, the relative advantage is, is much bigger than it is in like, you know, nobody more- else is learning it. Exactly. Right. It's very few, very few. Yeah. And again, and it's not only just being able to do it, it's being able to really dedicate yourself to it and commit to this stuff because it's going to be hard. But, um, you know, I think there's such an opportunity here for people who really want to get into this. And, and you know, the, the mastery of this, it's, you know, the, the results speak for themselves. It's very rare for us to find a seven figure plus practice that doesn't have knowledge of this before they meet us. And it's very rare to see people that are on the road to getting there that don't take this very seriously. So I know we're getting towards the end of our time, Jeremy, but I know you yeah. had a special offer for anyone who's listening to the podcast. So, you know, well, yeah, I mean, so that, well, maybe not that, whatever. It's not even, it's not even that cool. <laughs> but if they, if they want some resources, like some free, we won't charge them for these resources, but if they want some resources that will, you know, help them in different situations they are going to be in to sell more. If they want a little nibble, we'll give them a few nibbles, little hors d'oeuvres. They could just go to one of our free Facebook groups, uh, send them to that link I sent you, www.salesrevolution.pro. So if they go to salesrevolution.pro, salesrevolution.pro, right when they join, I think there's like 37, 38,000 people in that, in, in, in that Facebook. We have multiple Facebook groups, but we have attorneys in there. I've seen testimonies. We've got lots of other industries in there. Once they join that, have them check their Facebook Messenger because somebody on my team, they'll say, hey, I'm with Jeremy. They'll message them over a free training called the NAPQ 101 mini course. And it's our, my CEO, his name's Matt Ryder. 
we'll break down the NEPQ sales process and give you guys some different questions. Like I just kind of gave you a few little nibbles there, connecting questions that will help you guys in different situations, sales situations that you're in. And then if they want like obviously far more advanced training than that, they can always message us in the group and uh, somebody can reach out to them if they want more advanced skills too, for sure. Yeah. And I'll also throw this out there. You guys got a podcast too, right? We do. Yeah, we have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually kind of curious about the name for the, 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 the <laughs> name was interesting. Closers are losers, right? Yeah. Closers <laughs> are losers. Do you want to know why we named it that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Because it goes back to the same old adage that you said at the beginning that attorneys don't want to hear the word sales. What is behind them not wanting? Why is most people not like salespeople over even like politicians and like the DMV or public <laughs> speaking? Yeah. Because of how they view sales, because of how they've been tried, people have tried to sell them, which is manipulate, push, pressure, it's adversarial. That's why. So if you're using those old school techniques, closers, closing, then you're triggering sales resistance and closers are losers. So when you learn how to sell with human behavior, okay, we don't even like to use the word closing. We use what are called committing questions. We get them to commit to take the next step and purchase what we're offering so they get the results they want, right? We don't even like, I don't even, I hate the word closing. So that's what we say, it's a marketing thing because people are obviously like, what? Closers are losers. I'm not a loser, I'm a closer. Yeah. But once they learn that, wow, they could be closing three times as many people once they learn how to work with human behavior rather than trigger sales resistance, they kind of get like, oh, I don't want to be a closer. Like I, yeah. I want to be like a problem finder and problem solver and like help people solve their problems and make a lot of money doing for it. Cause it's a lot easier to sell when you have that adage. That's why we have that. I love that. And it's also, I mean, I love the, I love the contrarian angle too. It's definitely got a peak by curiosity. And I'll, I'll just say this guys, you know, for the research that I was doing on Jeremy and his, his, his stuff, totally worth looking into. I would definitely give that stuff a look and um, join the Facebook group too, if this is resonating with you. But, um, Jeremy, sure. I super appreciate the time, man. Um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> thanks for playing ball with the uh, on-the-spot role play. I really appreciate that. Hey, anytime. Hey, I do. I do a lot of role plays. I'm usually like three to five podcasts a week. With like every <laughs> industry you can think of. So, got to think quick on my feet. But we do train a lot of people in your space too. So we yeah. we have sales structures even written out for people in your space too. So I pretty much know them all like the back of my hand at this point. <laughs> super impressive. <laughs> I don't want to understand how cool that was, but um, I just needed right. to know more context for him. Like, well, are they call on the phone or they come in the hat like what is, what's going on give me some context and i can come up with something really quick yeah that so you nail it brother but um all right and then for everybody else i'll see you guys next tuesday at 8 a.m eastern on the law firm growth podcast thanks john thank you for listening to the law firm growth podcast for show notes free resources and more head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast looking forward to catching up on the next episode